We're going to go back to Ephesians, but I'm not sure how much exactly. But it's partly because I'm going to bridge the gap between where we've been in Luke chapter 24 and where we will return to to go to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So to see, and part of part of the reasons why it's easy to do that is because Scripture is inspired by the Spirit of God, and so the same. Spirit that inspired Luke to write his gospel is the same spirit that inspired Paul to write his letter. And so, unsurprisingly, there's overlap and there are ways that they enhance one another. So we're going to kind of bridge the gap today. I think we'll get into some some new verses in Ephesians chapter 4, but I'm going to open it up for some comments and questions a little bit early. And depending on if there's things that need clarified there... Uh, that'll kind of determine how far we get into new material in Ephesians chapter 4. So where we have been, especially last week, was this story from Luke's gospel, chapter 24. It's the last chapter of Luke's gospel, the chapter that Luke devotes to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that uh, narrative, in that explaining what happened on that third day, it it devotes most of its time to a little episode of two disciples traveling from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus, about seven miles away. And as they're traveling, they're joined by a stranger who is Jesus, but their eyes are prevented from recognizing him as Jesus. They just view him as a stranger who seems very much out of touch with what has happened. And then last week's sermon, the gist of it was, in fact... This stranger is the only one that does know what happened. That was kind of last week's message. But the stranger asked them, what things are you discussing along the way? Uh, They seem sad. Uh, They seem discouraged. And so what we discovered is they rehearsed their disappointment and their sorrow. We had hoped that this Jesus of Nazareth, one who was powerful in word and deed, we had hoped that he was the promised one, the one who would fulfill promises to redeem Israel. But in fact, our leaders crucified him, which was a horrible thing. And nobody saw it coming. They were so disappointed. But then it got confusing because the third day on Sunday, some women rushed back from the tomb saying that he wasn't there. He'd risen. That's good. I wasn't even expecting that, but you're on the ball. That's good. Everybody else was like, oh, well. Some of the disciples went and ran to the tomb And they found it just like the women said, but there were no angels when those disciples went, the few. And um, they didn't find the body of Jesus either. So there was still just a lot of confusion and there was still a lot of disappointment. And then finally, this stranger, they still don't recognize the stranger as Jesus. Finally, he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Now, one of the other things I told you last week is that if you're a Christian, and if you've lived for very long, you're going to find out that God disappoints you. Uh, And that's a good thing. Because God isn't here to serve our needs and our whims and our wishes in ways that would be detrimental to what is his good and perfect plan. But it's a hard word, that word disappointment. 
There will be times where God will bring tears rather than joy. It's just a true thing. But that's kind of a down note. Even though it's true, it's still a hard word. And so I kind of want to balance that this week, correct it a little bit, because the narrative also teaches the positive point. Our disappointments can be bested or trumped by an awareness and comprehension of something grander and better. It is not just that God disappoints me in what I want. God substitutes and actually grants something much better. But I need God to give me a heart and eyes to see it and to receive it and to appreciate it for what it is. It's very easy when we're disappointed or when we're sorrowful or when we're suffering, it's very easy to recognize what is taken away. Those two disciples, which are a little obscured now, that are joined by the stranger. But those two disciples, they know what they've lost. They know that the person that they admired and followed and were loyal to and devoted to, they had lost the relationship they had with him. But what they didn't recognize is what they'd gained. And they're going to discover what they've gained very shortly, even in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. But that's true for all of God's people under all circumstances. We're probably the first ones to notice what we've lost, but by the grace of God, we will also discover what we've gained. And the trade-off is never equal. It's always in our favor. It's always better. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians. Now, we've already been in Ephesians chapter 3, but it's worth reminding you of because it directly applies to this narrative of these two two, uh, disciples traveling to Emmaus. Paul's letter reads this way. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In fact, God did for those two disciples traveling from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus far greater than they could have possibly imagined. In fact, what God is going to accomplish in the resurrected Christ, and then his ascending to the Father 40 days later, what God is going to accomplish is far more than what they could have possibly hoped if Jesus had stayed alive according to their own wishes, according to their own desires. It's not just true of those two disciples that they're going to get more than they could possibly imagine. It will be true for all of Jesus' disciples. All of that they thought they had lost will be swallowed up in the joy of all they had gained that is so much better. In fact, that's what the church is always discovering. That no matter what we've lost, we find out that God is working something greater and better, and we have new reasons to celebrate, which is a good reason why I wanted to start off with 10,000 reasons. But in Luke chapter 24, we're not quite done there yet. Luke goes on to write, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He doesn't tell us exactly what passages of scripture he shared with those two disciples, but I would contend that one of them was Psalm 16. And I would contend that because Psalm 16 talks about not leaving a body in the grave to corrupt, 
And I would contend that because Peter preaches Psalm 16 at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and Paul preaches or references the same passage when he's on one of his missionary journeys. So Peter repeats it, Paul repeats it, Jesus is sharing with these two disciples all that is written in the Scriptures, that the Messiah had to resurrect. He couldn't stay in the grave. And so we're going to read Psalm 16, which is in your bulletin insert. The bold print, everybody's going to read together. The regular print, volunteers can read. There's kind of a break most of the way down. There's a double line. Psalm 16 ends at verse 11. And then the next two scriptures are from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, just to show you how he quotes it. So we're going to read through this. I'll make a couple comments, and then we'll sing our next two songs. Together, let's read. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. Just a couple thoughts on Psalm 16. The psalmist starts off describing his relationship with the Lord in those first two verses. I take refuge in you. You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. Uh, That's true in more ways than we can possibly imagine. We don't come before an almighty God in our own righteousness. And here's what I've done and why I deserve something from you. The only good we have is found in Christ. And the only good we do is because of Christ working in us. So he recognizes his relationship with God to start. Then he recognizes his relationship with God's people in verse 3. The holy people who are in the land. My delight is in them. Because if you love God, you love God's people. In putting it in New Testament terms, if you love Christ, you love Christ's church. There's a, a serious and significant disconnect when people want to claim that they love Christ, they're just not interested in the church. That's the bride of Christ. That's like telling one, uh, telling some couple, oh, I, you know, I really love you. I just really don't like, I want anything to do with your spouse. I just really don't care for them. It doesn't work like that. If you love Christ, you love Christ's people. But I realize I'm like kind of a piece of work and you're kind of a piece of work too. But one of the ways that God rubs off some of the rough edges is he puts us together. It's kind of like in the the little rock tumbler that I had back when I was a kid. And you just put, and the rocks spin and spin and spin in there. And the the rough edges get smoothed off. And it becomes a very nice uh, polished rock. That's part of why God puts us together in this little tumbler. Because we learn the fruit of the Spirit. We acquire the fruit of the Spirit in some times of adversity. You know, you really don't need patience with me if you're all by yourself. You really don't need to extend charity to me or forgiveness to me or long-suffering to me if you're never around me. You know, I'm really good for Cindy because, you know, she's got all these opportunities that some of you miss out on. (laughs) But that's part of why God does it. He puts us all together. So you love God's people. But then in verse 4, you've got his relationship with the wicked people, and he's like, I won't even speak their names. I mean, we should be more at home. There should be a unique thing about God's people coming together, and we shouldn't be have the same type of delight or relationship with those that are outside of Christ. It doesn't mean we're not building bridges. I mean, that's how the gospel gets shared, through some of those relationships. But that's not where we're really home. That's not really exactly the same, and the psalmist recognizes that in verse 4. 
There was an old preacher reading some messages on that where he said, it's kind of like Peter warming his hands by the fire in the courtyard. It was really not the place for him to be at that time. And, and the preacher said, if we're warming our hands by the fires of the wicked, the unrepentant, it won't be long before we deny our Lord. It won't be long before we compromise the people God has called us to be. And then he goes on and he talks about his portion. And he uses such rich poetic language. You are my portion, my cup of blessing. You hold my future. He talks about pleasant places and a beautiful inheritance. And he says, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. You know, whatever God gives me or doesn't give me in life, I've got what matters most in Christ. I've got an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away in Christ. And so come what may, that's where my, if that's where my treasure is, then what can the world do? And just to remind myself of these things. That's why these things are written. So that I would remind myself. Now, and then in some sense, what David writes, it does have application to him. His body was laid in a grave and it did see corruption. But his body won't remain in the grave. It will be resurrected when Christ comes back in power and glory. And the reason why that David can have confidence in that is because Christ never saw corruption on the third day he rose again. And because of his resurrection, every other resurrection is guaranteed, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. David's resurrection is in hope of life, eternal life. But everyone will be resurrected because Christ was resurrected on that third day. So we have much to be grateful for even in the night when our thoughts trouble us. So two songs that I think uh, fit well for this. The first is a very simple song, a child's song, which I find is filled with so much meaning. Jesus loves me, this I know. The words will be on the screen because it's not in our new hymnal. Jesus loves me, this I know. Let's everybody stand again. I like that last verse because it reminds me of what I think those two disciples on the road to Emmaus might have been thinking as they're telling all this, telling Jesus their sorrows and their troubles and their disappointment. And then Jesus turns it on the head by revealing truths that they had missed. All right, so Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 978. We're going to reread the verses that introduce where we're headed in Ephesians chapter 4. What we're going to find. I'm going to kind of set it up so that you know what to look for, just in case you don't. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is calling the Gentile Christians to abandon the way they used to walk when they were still in darkness. To walk differently. To be like Christ. And this kind of goes really well with the motif of these two disciples who are walking. And Jesus is going to call them to stop walking with the sullenness and the sorrow and the disappointment that is... Uh, marked their steps for seven long miles. Stop walking like that. We're also going to find that becoming a Christian involves a radical transformation and entirely new identity. Whatever marked your life, uh, particularly whatever sin might have marked your life before you were a Christian, that is not who you are any longer. You have a new identity. We are not a collection of, oh, I'm an angry Christian. Oh, I'm a gay Christian. Oh, I'm a, I'm a jealous Christian. I'm a, no, you're a Christian. 
What identifies you is your life in Christ, not your sin. Our sin was left at the cross. We are new men and women in Christ. We are to walk and embrace that. And then lastly, we're going to find out it involves these steps, putting off your old self, being renewed in the spirit of your minds, and putting on the new self, which is created by God in Christ Jesus. And I like that word created because Paul isn't saying turn over a new leaf. Paul isn't saying it's a new year, make some new resolutions and be changed. Paul is saying, no, no. What I'm talking about, this change is rooted and grounded in something that God and God alone can do. He created life when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. His grace did what we cannot do. And so because of that, we are transformed new people. So follow along in your Bibles because these words aren't on the screen. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says this. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former way of life, or former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To put off and to put on this great transformation that's taken place. That's what Paul's calling for. And and those disciples, if you apply it in Luke chapter 24 to those two disciples, I have no doubt that when they returned to Jerusalem, because they, they arrived to Emmaus where they wanted to be, they talked Jesus or persuaded Jesus into coming, coming in with them, though Jesus was giving the appearance that he was going to keep going. And Jesus came in and Jesus talked with them and then Jesus broke bread in such a way that all of a sudden the scales were lifted, their eyes were open and they recognized, this was Jesus who broke the bread before us. And then Jesus disappeared. But they were so excited, they went immediately right back to Jerusalem And I have no doubt they got to Jerusalem a lot faster than what it took them to get to Emmaus. And that's the point, right? That's the difference between walking in the old life and the new life. In the old life, there's sorrow and disappointment. In the old life, our steps are dogged by sin and weakness. But when we recognize that Christ died to set us free from sin... That Christ was resurrected, that his life would be reflected in us. Dude, we have a pep in our step. That rhymes too, that's kind of impressive. And they got back to Jerusalem a whole lot faster. And I don't think they ran all the way, the, the whole way unless they were supernaturally endowed. I couldn't run seven miles, especially this last week with the asthma things I've had going on. But I couldn't just flat out run seven miles. But you know what? I would get there just as quick as I possibly could. These disciples are walking in newness of life. And it's reflected even in the language of Ephesians chapter 4. But then adding to that, you can go to Colossians. Just a few pages further in your Bible. 
because Colossians chapter 3 is practically a commentary on Ephesians, or Ephesians is a commentary on Colossians, because they're so similar. It's kind of like Second Peter is an awful lot like the book of Jude, or the letter of Jude. Very similar. They overlap in so many ways. What Paul just described about putting off your old self and not walking like you used to walk and walking in newness of life and thinking differently. Well, that's also what Paul wrote to the Colossians. And they're all prison epistles, so they were written uh, about the same time. And it was in, it was obviously something that was deeply uh, embedded in Paul's mind. And so he wrote to the Colossians along the same line. So in your Bibles, find Colossians chapter 3. I've got a page number if you're using a pew Bible. Otherwise, go past Philippians, get to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Look at all the similarities. He starts off then, if then you have been raised with Christ. Uh, this may not mean a lot to you. It's a first class condition in Greek. So the if then is the idea Paul's writing to Christians. It could be translated since. Since. You have been raised with Christ. If you're a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. That's a given. There's there's no other alternative. So, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, just like he writes to the Ephesians, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you've died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, this sounds like Ephesians, verse 7, In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul wrote the Ephesians, he's like, you used to live like a Gentile. But you know what? Your primary identity is not a Gentile. You are a son of the living God by virtue of your faith in Christ. You belong to Christ. You're not primarily a Gentile or a Jew or a male or a female or a slave or free or any of those things. Your identity is in Christ. So stop thinking like a Gentile or back when we actually were in that text, stop living like an American and live like you belong to the kingdom of God because it's greater and it's better. And then Paul writes the same things to the Colossians. Well, a song that captures all this very nicely, which I like too because it's a resurrection song and I'm still celebrating the resurrection, though really it's every Sunday of every year. I get that, but it's still really fresh in my mind, especially since we're still in Luke chapter 24. So a song we've never done here before, but I guess if you listen to Christian radio, I I suppose they play it. I don't really listen to Christian radio, so I'm not sure how much is played. But it's a song by uh, Matt Mowers, the guy who sings it. Christ is risen. He's uh, Christ is risen. It's uh, risen from the grave. Well, the words will be on the screen in just a moment. Uh, It's a beautiful song. It's uh, probably not super easy to sing, especially if you don't know it. 
but it is so fitting because in the song, the song is calling us to live resurrected lives. To stop living, in Bob George language, it's stop living like you're a caterpillar. Stop living as if you haven't experienced transformation. Stop living as if you don't have wings and can sail, brother. You can sail. You live by grace. You've got every hope. God has already promised he'll never leave you or forsake you. God's already promised that he will work all things together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Not all good for all people of the world, but if you're in Christ, that's the promise. Take it to the bank. Sail. Live. Let's stand. Christ is risen. Strategy for keeping everybody awake. Up and down. Up up and down. So here's where we've been. The Ephesians passage, the Colossians passage. Becoming a Christian involves a radical transformation and entirely new identity. Are there any comments and questions before we push forward? Um, Israel has the idea of wrestling with God, right? Striving with God. Is that right? I think that's right. Uh, well, I think Israel, in his, Jacob turning to Israel, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I haven't not preached, you know, I'm not off the top of my head. Abraham is obviously the father of the faithful. He's also father of the Jewish people. Uh, Isaac then being the second patriarch. Jacob is kind of transition because in his, uh, in his, Sons, in his, they will become the nation of Israel. Uh, Abraham had more than Isaac. So he had sons that are not part of that chosen people. Uh, the same would be true of Isaac, who had Esau, not part of the chosen people. But Jacob is now going to be, in a sense, not just, he's going to be the father of a nation in a unique way, and that nation is going to strive with God. So I think the name is given to represent not only his own wrestling, because Jacob was a deceiver and he had lessons to learn, but all of Israel will be marked by uh, a lot of sin and disobedience and wrestling with God. So that's kind of where I would go with that. Good question. Somebody else? Cindy. Hmm. That's interesting. I'd never heard that. That's awesome. I wish you knew who said that. That's really interesting. We don't talk as much as we used to. <laughs> right, but in a sense. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. It was just like on the cross. He let sinners crucify him. He let us, he let wicked people win. But they really didn't win. That was actually the plan. Yeah, that's really interesting. So now you've got an assignment in your retirement to find who wrote that. Somebody else? All right, we'll push forward just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 32. You're still on page, if you were there a minute ago, you're still on page 978. We're going to see a list of behaviors now, what we should put off, this is what should not characterize us. It will sound a lot like Colossians chapter 3 that I've already read. We'll read about other behaviors that we ought to put on 
in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. We're going to see that the purpose and goal of Christ's work of redemption is not just to get people to stop sinning and being mean to one another. The goal of the Christian life isn't just to not do things. And if all the church or Christians are ever known for is what we're against and what we don't do, we really haven't grasped why Christ rose from the dead. Because we are... He rose from the dead that we would do new things, not just the old things. If the goal is not to do the old things, we're thinking way too much about the sin and the old things. And you'll never walk in newness of life. The idea is we are attracted to these new things. We pursue these new things. It's like, why would I want to live that old way? I don't have time for that. It's nowhere near as interesting. It's nowhere near as exciting. It's nowhere near as freeing. It doesn't bring life to my soul. I want to walk in newness of life. Once you've tasted something better, you don't go back to the old. So we're going to see that in these verses. We're going to see that new birth results in new life. This should go without saying, but in fact, especially, I don't know about all cultures, but in Western culture, it's a very popular notion to think that somehow you can be saved by grace and it doesn't really affect change other than you get to go to heaven when you die. I do not know that the Bible ever teaches such a nonsense. If you are saved by grace, it makes a difference in how you live. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 with verse 10. If you are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works so that no one could boast. Entirely saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But if that has happened, brother, that grace changes you. And you are now committed to a life transformed by your works. It doesn't, it's not what makes you saved, but it's the result of God's salvation. It's even clear in the Apostle of Love, in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, where he explicitly says, if someone says they know God and they disobey, disobey his commandments, they're a liar. And the truth is not in them. It is impossible to live in persistent, perpetual disobedience to all that Christ has commanded and still be saved by grace. It just doesn't go together. It's incompatible. And the Bible teaches that. And so we're going to see what that new life looks like. The new life was established in those first three chapters. This is not what is going to make you a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you will find yourself pursuing this pattern of life because that's what you were saved to. Starts off like this. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So you've got this, uh, this putting off of falsehood and putting on truth. It's the putting off, putting on concept. Then, in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I put angry in a little bit different color because you don't have the same balance that you had in the first time. I mean, the first time it's don't lie, tell the truth. And then the second time it's a little more blurred or confusing what exactly uh, Paul is requiring or expecting of Christians. That will be the most controversial one that we talk about. Then you've got, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Nice balance. Don't steal. Do some honest work. Get busy. Very nice balance there. Then you've got, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, a very nice balance. No corrupting talk, only that which is good for building up. Three of the four, it's very clear. Don't do this. Instead, do this other thing. It couldn't be more clear. The hard one will be the anger one. He then continues. Oh, no, I forgot about this. In each case, he gives you a reason why he gives the command. So, for telling the truth, he says, here's the reason why we're members one of another. That's why you should do that. For anger, the reason why he gives whatever he means by this, the the reason behind it is he doesn't want you to give an opportunity to the devil. So far as working honestly, it's so that you would have something to share. Like, if you're not sharing, then you're not fulfilling that command. Because that's the reason why it was given. And then the last one, that you should only say that which is good for building up, so that it may give grace to those who hear. People that listen to us talk ought to, ought to be able to say they are a gracious person. Even if they have something difficult to say or hard to say, they're gracious in the way they do it. Among God's people, for sure. Now, it goes on, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then you've got another big series of don't do these things, but instead do these things. The don't do are let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, here's your reason, as God in Christ forgave you. So now you've got to, in, in quick fashion, one, two, three, four, five, six things you shouldn't do, but just don't make it your goal not to do those things. Instead, be, learn to be kind. Learn to be tender-hearted. Be a forgiving people. And if that's hard to motivate yourself, just remember how much God has forgiven you in Christ. If you recognize that, extending forgiveness to people in your life is really pretty small potatoes. Let's start with the first one, and this is probably the only one we'll be able to do. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Uh, falsehood is our native tongue. It is our native language. It is, we, we uh, learn very early on in toddlerhood to speak falsely or to tell a lie. Or to deceive. Now, I'm not going to say we're good at it. Because children that are very small and tell a lie, it's written all over their faces. And, and, it, and you know, from their vantage point, it's like my parents are like all-knowing. They saw right through me. And it's really because you're not very good at that language yet. But it'll come. It'll come. What is impressive is in Genesis chapter 3, Adam, he spoke this language as if he'd known it all his life. And he just learned it when he transgressed and ate of the fruit that was given him. It was deceptive because everything he said was true, but it was deceptive. It was falsehood. Because the Lord said, Have you eaten of the tree 
of which I told you not to eat? It's kind of a yes or no question. It's like, you know, I watch a few YouTube videos of news stories. I'm a Rand Paul fan. I like Rand Paul. He'll be quizzing somebody on some committee. He'll ask a question. It's yes or no. And he never gets a yes or no answer. It's a, it's a much longer answer. Have you eaten of the tree? Well, the woman that you gave me. Is that true? Did Eve, did the Lord give Eve to Adam? Well, that's true. The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Is that true? That's true too. And I ate. So everything he said was true. It was entirely deceptive. Because the truth is, Eve was deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly that if he takes that fruit, he is explicitly, knowingly, purposefully disobeying the command of God. He had no illusions that this might turn out good in the end. He knew he was disobeying. So he spoke this language of deception and falsehood very easily, very quickly. It started in Genesis chapter 3. But there's lots of ways we can do this. White lies half-truths, false impressions, misleading exaggerations, gossip. Gossip, I mean, in gossip, you can say things that are true, it just doesn't need to be said. That's part of falsehood. You're, share, you're sharing your prayer requests to make sure everybody knows this serious situation. But the gen, my general rule of thumb, at least what I want to keep in mind, is if I'm not part of the problem and I'm not part of the solution and I'm not sharing with somebody who's going to be a part of the solution, I, real, I just need not to be sharing it. It's part of falsehood. It's part of sharing salacious, salacious information that just doesn't need to be shared. So I think that all falls under the umbrella of falsehood. Conversely, to speak the truth, that is sort of self-evident. I mean, I don't... No, I'm not sworn into court, but they used to say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Which sounds redundant, but it's not. Because you can say things that are true, but it's not the whole truth. Or it's not nothing but the truth. What we learned in men's breakfast discussion, the last chapter we read, partly on confession, he talked about confess, confession being part of the truth. That shouldn't be hard for Christians to confess to one another. Because I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. So the fact that I can own up to my sin or would own up to my sin to other people that may help me in my sin, that should be a no-brainer. That's part of speaking the truth. If I give the impression I never need prayer or I never, never struggle with sin and or temptation, that's a falsehood. Because if I say I am without sin, I'm a liar. Again, according to the Apostle of John, the Apostle of Love in 1 John. I still struggle, as do you. So being honest about our struggles and our failures is part of speaking the truth. I'm not sure what the next slide is. It might... Okay. For we are members of one another. Which is kind of interesting that that would be his reason why we should, we should speak the truth. I would rather expect him to say that we should put away falsehood and speak the truth because Christ is the truth. Or put away falsehood and speak the truth because God only knows the truth. God is not, God is not pleased. He is offended when we, when we falsely portray what is true. But the reason he gives why we should speak the truth is because of our relationship with one another, which is very interesting. 
But in another sense, it's not surprising if you just take one step back and understand kind of where Paul got this change that needs to take place because he's actually quoting slash referring to what the prophet Zechariah wrote. If you have a cross-reference Bible, I'm sure there's a cross-reference to Zechariah chapter 8. I'm going to show you the verses on the screen. Zechariah 8 says, These are the things, this is Zechariah talking to the nation Israel, these are the things that you should shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Zechariah is dealing with the community of God's people, of his nation. And he says, your, your community, your nation should be marked by truth. Similarly, the church should be marked by truth. I'm 64, virtually 64. I've, li- I've been in enough churches, and because I'm in pastor's groups, I hear enough stories that I can tell you, and I've experienced plenty of churches that aren't marked by truth. And if you've been around, you probably have some of your stories too. And sometimes they're not very good because there's times of favoritism and power plays and manipulation. And honestly, when I first came to this church, uh, because it was kind of after a, a church split situation and things, when I first came to this church, there were definitely some people that thought anything that I wanted to do, what was my real agenda for doing it? And I've had pastors tell me, you know, how they will try to manipulate a situation or how things they will say or won't say to people because uh, they're always trying to control outcomes. They're always trying to win favor or, or uh, marginalize somebody that they don't like. That happens all the time. And what I'm reading from Zechariah and what I'm reading from Paul is, you know what, the church ought to be a truth-telling community where we're honest, we're open with one another. We learn the process of reconciliation. We learn the process of forgiveness. We learn the process of of bearing patiently with one another. I realize not everybody's going to be your best friend. Life doesn't work like that. But we can all be kind and tenderhearted to one another. And we can learn to get along. Because I'm saved by the grace of God, and by the grace of God, that's how you're saved too. And so whatever differences we may have, I realize some of you are Cardinal fans. In spite of that, in spite of that, by the grace of God, we will be in the kingdom of heaven in spite of our sports allegiances. And that's just more important. That's just more important. And we need to recognize that. Um, And I will open it up for comments and questions now. We'll save anger for next week. Lori. Right. So if you're in the back, you're, I mean, she's just talking about, because I don't think they can hear you, just the, the difficulty it is to live out those principles. Uh, it's worth it, but it's difficult. And it's, it's a process, and it requires wisdom. And that's why Paul in Galatians 6 says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, lest you, all, lest you also be tempted and overcome by the same sin. It's not easy. Uh, you know, I've had... Shoot, I had one story and I lost it. And the other story I'm not sure I want to tell. So uh, <clears throat> it's, it's worth it to do the right thing to the best of your ability. And, and I think seeking good godly counsel and how do you restore relationships that are broken. And you can always extend forgiveness, but trust, trust is built. Like, you know, 
where trust is broken, uh, you can't immediately trust a person with uh, certain responsibilities or privileges until that's built up again, but you can extend forgiveness. And you can work towards building the trust, but it's a process, it's difficult, but it's what God expects. You know, I know what I was going to say that I can. You know, this idea of render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. You know, one of the things that happens in, in some churches is there's a different standard for different people. Uh, sometimes uh, in some churches, teenagers or young people are called to a standard that adults aren't called to. Uh, because adults, I don't know why, I mean, they have more power or influence or they give more money or whatever the case may be. And sometimes churches are a little, little less reluctant to deal with sin from adults, open, unrepentant sin from adults than teenagers. I can remember a story, and I can't remember exactly all the details of it, but the story, you know, where, where there were some... some I rem- in fact, it was here. Uh, I remember saying, if we don't deal with this, there are teenagers who are going to see that we don't deal with this, and that's not good. Because if, if we're going to call out a certain type or measure of sin, it needs to be called out no matter how it's doing it, including me. I mean, how many pastors? That was part of Mark Driscoll's problem, right? In case you're not up on him, you can disregard what I'm going to say. But he was very influential, very talented and gifted in lots of ways. But because he was so talented and gifted and seemed so influential and was affecting seemingly, and, and I'm sure he did, help so many people in so many ways, but his own sin was never called on the carpet. And it wound up being destructive in the end. Um, and what Zachariah is talking about is your pursuit of holiness applies to everyone. To the newest member, to the oldest member, It shouldn't make any difference. We are pursuing a righteousness that is not ours. It is in Christ and Christ alone. And so the fact that somebody would ever find out that I'm a sinner, uh, you know, I like what Charles Spurgeon says. Some people say uh, these terrible things about me. It's a great quote. He's like, some people say this and this about me. I've got news for you. It's worse than you imagine. My sin is deeper and more pervasive than you can possibly imagine. So no matter what you say about me, it's worse than that. I can concur. Uh, Cindy. I'm only up to verse 25. We'll find out. Yeah. Yeah, you're way ahead. Uh, Because the grieving the Holy Spirit is also an interesting passage is that there's no clear balance there. It's like anger. There's no, you know, most of these, it's like, don't do this, do this instead. But anger's a little less clear, and then not grieving the Holy Spirit, uh, I guess implicit in that is don't grieve him, but rather be led by the Holy Spirit is the way you, you might balance it from Galatians. But we'll have to talk about that more when we get there. Sarah? I don't know that there's going to be a litmus test as to what you will do in every situation. Uh, you know, I think of the Becky Pippert story from Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Wonder, delightful speaker. But I remember, you know, sometimes, she makes the point that sometimes as Christians, we give the people who are not Christians, we give them the impression that all of our problems are solved. And Becky Pippert talks about this one time where she had a, this really bad day. I can't remember all the circumstances. And she just broke down to her unsaved neighbor. And her unsaved neighbor comforted her and encouraged her. 
And that was really the tool that God used to bring this unsaved person to faith because the, un, the unbeliever said, I found out, Becky, that you're weak just like I am. I found out that you struggle just like I do. But the difference is you know where to take your struggle. You know how it's ultimately resolved. It's in Christ and his promises. I don't. And that was an attractive thing. So I don't know that it's exactly the same. Like I think the Christian community is different in very unique ways, but I don't think it means we shouldn't admit to unbelievers we struggle to. I think so. I think in this context, it's really talking about within the church. But I think, yeah, I think it can extend beyond that. Somebody else? Connie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great word picture, too. Who said that? So now you and Cindy have something to talk about. I mean, I don't know, again, I'm not going to say the path forward is going to be the same for everybody. You know, if we take it one at a time, if, you're, if I'm speaking the truth, it's going to be humbling. Because the truth about me is not pretty. <laughs> so if I'm, if I'm actually speaking the truth, uh, it's not always going to be flattering to me. Which is kind of the amazing thing about the Bible. Which is why the Bible is a book of history, is so unique, and that it doesn't paint Israel in a great light where most of the world histories, you know, these ancient documents from the pharaohs in Egypt, they kind of gloss over the bad stuff. Uh, We gloss over the bad stuff in our culture. We don't want to talk about the the low periods, the things we've done really mucked up. I don't like talking about the ways I've mucked things up. But the Bible, dude, it's like filled with skeletons. So the truth is, you know, if I'm speaking the truth, I'm owning that I am a work in progress and I've got a long way to go and that's humbling. That's humbling. I think, uh, Darwin, you've got the book Life Together, right? Read that chapter. It's, it's pretty terrific. So, the I think they cycle. One, one fuels the other. I think one fuels the other. Uh, the more, you know, obviously the humility thing is you know, if you think you've got it, you don't. You've lost it again. You're starting over. It's like playing the game where, you know, what is shoots and ladders. Like, just when you think you're just about got it and you land and you've got to go all the way back. And like, ugh. So, uh, Joe. So, I, I think... Yeah. Because it would be easy to be demeaning to one another because those were long-standing habits. Yeah. I think that's true. And, and then, Connie, also going back to your point, and I'll end on this because we're out of time. But uh, in my own prayer life, like one of the things that I gravitate to is I, I pray for affections rather than desires. And I, the, the distinction isn't sharp in Scripture, but I think there's something there. And, and Jonathan Edwards was all about religious affections. And affection to me is, is this new positive desire, but it's an affection. A desire is more ruled from within. So there's times in the Bible desire is used well, like uh, Jesus desired to eat this Passover with you. Uh, Paul desires to go to Rome. You know, they're good desires, but desires generally, most of the time in the Bible are associated with the flesh and self. So I'm not to be ruled by my selfish desires. So I pray to God to give me new affections, things that are that 
I'm really not going to gravitate to those things except that God puts them in my heart. And if God gives me those new affections and I'm obedient to the things he's showing me, I don't have time for my desires. I find that there's progress made there. I think I've just about got a licked, <laughs> which is a joke because I just hit the shoot and I'm back. <laughs> Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.